to episode 22 of All's Fair in Love and Film, a film review podcast where we review our DVD collection in alphabetical order. And today we finally hit B. Yay. I'm Laura. And I'm Ryan. And this week we're talking about uh, Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, excellent films. Excellent films. Uh, Ryan, what is your history with this trilogy? Um, It's kind of a bit weird because I've only... I'd only really seen episode one, the the first and the second film, and the last like five minutes of the third one, which is crazy. I thought for sure you'd seen the third film. Like yeah. that was a revelation today. Yeah, that was uh, it was a bit it was a bit weird, but um, yeah, I I watched them when I was quite young, if, if I remember correctly. Like I remember definitely being like my like ten or ten or ten or eleven watching them, and it was they were really really good when I. Uh, I remember them being really good, really immersive. I mean, I also re- definitely rem- uh, remembered like some like key key parts of it that kind of had like spill into other like parts of like the general cultural zeitgeist that I didn't really realize were definitely part of this before they were anything else. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, like I, I'm not surprised that you saw them quite young. I think because these films kind of came out like in the mid to late '80s. The first one, obviously, coming out 1985. Um, a lot of like our parents would have seen them and then gone, oh, these are great. I should show them to my kids. So I think a lot of like us lot born in the kind of 90s, uh, they were kind of childhood childhood flicks. Uh, but that is that is not the case for me. I didn't see any of these films until I was about 14. And then when I, uh, like my at my mom's house when I was growing up, we had Sky Movies. And every Christmas, they'd get all like the big trilogies and all the big like film series, and they do like marathon days where you where they just play one after the other after the other. And I sat and watched all three Back to the Futures a few days before Christmas when I was about fourteen, and really really liked them then. And uh, I mean, they've never been my like favorite favorite films, and they still aren't to this day. I can recognize how good they are in terms of like there's such like great like comedy in there and you know the two leads are absolutely fantastic um and yeah they're they're really good movies but there's a lot of like kind of holes and problems and yeah they're just not my favorites at the end of the day well i mean to me it's just like it's a good like not super serious film it's just kind of something you can just like put on and just like kind of like just be happy kind of just like enjoying it's it's not like super immersive you don't have to really pay a ton of attention to the plot to kind of get the gist which is definitely a overall benefit to this to these films yeah for sure and like again it's that light-heartedness and also this film i'll get into this more later but this film definitely doesn't take itself very seriously either which is nice yeah especially for like a kind of big like classic film uh, before we get into too much more, shall I give us a quick plot summary? Yes, please. So we are going to be covering all three Back to the Future films today, but I'm just uh, nicking a quick uh, plot summary off the web just for the first film. Uh, so in a small town, California teen Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, is thrown back to 1955 when an experiment by his eccentric scientist friend Doc Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd, goes awry. Travelling through time in a modified DeLorean car, Marty encounters young versions of his parents, played by Chris Crispin Glover and Leia Thompson, and must make sure they fall in love or he'll cease to exist. And then Marty has to return to his own time and save the life of Doc Brown. And this 
continues immediately into the second film where there's uh, Doc Brown returns from the future in the DeLorean and they have to go to deal with Marty's kids 30 years from 1985. So that's 2005? No. 2015. 2015. My math is not good. Uh, so they have to go to 2015 and do that. And then uh, in the third film, they have to go even further back into the past to rescue Doc Brown again from being killed. Uh the plot beats are largely the same across the board. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's it's almost like car, it's like template, like, almost not cookie cutter, but kind of cookie cutter ish. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't find that at all. Having watched the kind of because I've watched the first one like a lot of times, and I've only maybe watched the second and third ones um, twice or three times um, since first seeing them, I, and I don't find that. I think I can see exactly what they like tried to do. And try to avoid making a cookie cutter with the second one because it's literally like in the same time moment and there are two Martys and there's one like sneaking around around the edges of the plot of the first one. Yeah. And yeah, it's maybe a bit like, oh, they went back to the same day on 1955. Isn't that a bit stupid? Well, I, I, w- I was more thinking like, I guess, cookie cutter in terms of overall pacing of the films. Yeah, I mean, it, go, it just, fe- it just it. feels like very... Like, if you play them simultaneously on three separate televisions at once, <laughs> I feel like the key kind of key plot points would literally be at the same points within each of the films. That's just the way it kind of feels as you're watching them. Uh, um, but I do think, you know, it, it, it works for them. It It doesn't, in a normal, like, trilogy, it would feel kind of tiresome and kind of, like, kind of cop-outy but in the in, in this trilogy it doesn't really feel cop-outy it does it kind of i feel like it kind of adds to the the kind of comedic mystique to it i guess yeah i i quite like that as well it because i i guess the way i the, the thing i like about it they've got this very kind of three stooges physical comedy like throughout and they're able to play off that a lot more in the second one when there's two yeah. Martys kind of moving around trying not to see each other and there's two Biffs doing the same thing. And then he's also like inadvertently hiding from the second Biff that he doesn't, the, the, the scene where they're kind of hiding around the car, he like Marty's hiding from 1955 Biff, but then 2015 Biff is also hiding from 1955 Biff, but then they kind of miss each other. There's a lot of little moments like that that I really, really enjoy. Well, yeah, and it's, it's just, you you do get like, it really plays with the physical comedy throughout like all three films and it's it's just i guess that's kind of something you don't get as much nowadays and it's 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 in some ways kind of refreshing and i kind of wish it kind of had we kind of could bring that back a bit well it's a difficult thing isn't it because you can't really do that kind of physical comedy without it looking like really hacky and old-fashioned and bad because and but this film gets away with it because it doesn't take itself seriously, which you can tell by the way they go like, they, they say the film's name so many times with ramping up frequency, like from yeah, throughout the, the first film to the third, by the, the third film, they're saying it like, they say it like six times throughout the film. They go, back to the future. Yeah. A lot of times it's really, it's really funny. But like, and also there was a line you mentioned, um, for, was it from the second film that, that made that made us both laugh quite a lot? It was just like, Doc, you're not gonna believe this, and then his reply is, "I don't believe it." Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just it's like, just... those kind of dialogue choices very much show you that it's it's like kind of being a bit of a send up of itself, and it's it's drawing on like tropes from kind of 
you know, Great Scott, like older comics yeah. and TV shows and stuff that yeah. like kind of pr- much predate this, but they're bringing these kind of little jokey tropes back and, and it, it just makes it like much funnier. Kind of going on with, with, with that kind of like what you're saying, um, the kind of the, like in each of the films, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to see Doc and Marty kind of switch switch roles through like like throughout all of them because like you like in I mean they they even do this within the the first film it's just like in the first bit uh, in the first very first third of the, of um the first film like Marty's just kind of along for the ride kind of like the 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 like overall just the everyman observer you know yeah but as soon as he's thrust into that position he's kind of he's kind of having to explain things through to doc doc brown which you know which is kind of the opposite um the opposite role to uh doc but it's it's just kind of i don't know it's they but you get that in each one of the films but it's kind of like it ramps up and it's kind of like hilarity almost yeah i mean i building on that again i really appreciate the relationship between doc and marty like on the one hand it's a bit weird that like a teenage kid is like friends with a reclusive single older man scientist thing and they have this kind of but again they just they're just like buddies and like you say there's times when you know doc brown is leading the way and marty's along for the ride there are times when marty kind of takes the initiative and has to save doc or help doc in some way and i just think they've got like a really nice give and take and i like you know their relationship is like just perfectly innocent and comedic yeah um and the fact that it's like not even questioned at any point, apart from like a couple of times Marty's mom going, Oh, why do you hang out with that weird old man? Um, which as a mother, she has a point. Um, but other than that, like there's at no point does um like Marty go, Oh, I feel sorry for him, or oh, I just, you know, I'm in it for the cool stuff or the cool adventures. He's just like, No, we're just, you know, we're just buddies, like yeah. which is again, maybe a little odd, but for the purposes of the film, it's I just think it's like a really nice relationship. There's no point. Uh, no point does um, Doc really go, "Oh, Marty, you won't get this because you're too young." And at no point does like, I mean, there's a couple of points where Marty goes, "Doc, you won't get this because you're old." But like, he then explains it to him, and it's like always trivial things. It's not like, a, "Oh, you won't understand me," or "You won't be any good at this because you're old." He doesn't devalue him because of their differences at any point, which I think is really nice. Yeah, I. I mean, honestly. I kind of got the impression, like, oh, I thought I thought um, Doc Brown was like his boss or something like that. At one point, like he was like almost like um, he was uh, like an intern. Yeah, like <laughs> like like his intern or his a assistant. mad scientist yeah. intern. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's kind of the the vibe I I got when I first Very watched it, so. and it was like, oh, he just kind of seems like he's he's like he helps he helps Doc Doc out a bit or occasionally, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, the only difference with that is like obviously Doc does not have like a business or a company he is just like mad scientist there is no like official professional relationship there but i like the interpretation of that yeah. that works like, mad scientist good. incorporated yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah uh so because we're again same as like last week where we we very much ran out of time discussing adventures endgame but we've got a lot of like content to discuss so i don't want to go through it like piece by piece by piece but one question i want to ask you because something you commented when we were watching the films earlier today was you thought they could have stopped at one now i kind of disagree but you may be able to change my mind with this discussion because they seeded 
other films throughout all of them. There's like references in the first film to Doc wanting to go to the Old West and and stuff like that. So that is and like they're the names of like um, Biff's ancestor is mentioned in the second film and stuff like that. So I was just wondering kind of like what your kind of take on that was. Um, I guess to me, it did kind of feel like, okay, yeah, they might have planned for the second and third, you know, parts. But I guess all in itself, I feel like Back to the Future, just the first part was, it was a strong enough film to stand on its own. It didn't kind of need a sequel, but I mean, it, I don't feel like the sequels, they, they have a few good, really, really, pertinent cultural touchstones but i don't really think like if you just have if you had only seen the first back of the future film it would have been enough i guess the other ones just kind of seem a bit fluffy i guess like they're they're good they're really good for they're really good sequels but i don't really think you like you you didn't you don't you didn't really need them you know yeah, I kind of get what you're saying because I, I, it just makes me wonder, right? Because obviously at the very end, each of these three films literally picks up exactly in the moment of where the last one left off, right? So if you think about it like this, like this all happens for Marty over the span of like two days, which is wild. Like it's it's Marty's no no good, very bad day of time travel. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> like, a very, very accurate reading of it's, that. It's wild, the fact that this happens in such a short span. But... um. He uh, so right at the end of the first film, like the last shot we get is obviously them flying into the second film. Like Doc comes back from 2015 and says, "Your kids, there's problems with your kids." Flies them off in the DeLorean. Famous line of "We where we're going, we don't need roads." And um, would you say that that was oh we're going to make a sequel, or do you think they could have left that hanging? Because for me, like every time I think about it, I'm like maybe it was designed just to be left hanging because it's so. Again, it's so that corny. hacky, yeah, it's that really corny old kind of comedy that's that kind of really like, oh, this is such just a bit. I that I reckon they did. They were planning a sequel, you know, and that, that, that they had that that they had this all done. I mean, I mean, we could look it up, but <laughs> <laughs> this um, is true. I do. They could have left even left that bit out, and it, but it, it like, but I I I do think it, they were always thinking about doing three, you know. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I reckon so too. Because like even like during like I say the first and the third and the second one, they're referencing wanting to go to the old west and Biff's uh, old west ancestor and stuff like that. But I, I guess it's just like, was it just meant to be like a corny? Oh, quick! We've got to go do the whole thing again, and then they were just gonna leave it hanging, or were, you know, could they have even left it hanging? Say that the franchise got like bombed and got cancelled, and they just had. Do you reckon they would have yeah. deleted the last scene, I, no, or just left it there, like the, the, as a oh, this was actually just an abstract joke the whole time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I guess to me, it could have been. You know, could you could have definitely done like an abstract joke of that, and that would have been perfectly fine it would have been in keeping with the whole with the whole rest of the film like it, it wouldn't feel out of place you know yeah that's kind of where i landed yeah. as well because i was a bit like that when you when you said that i thought a lot like quite a bit about it and was just like would it have worked just to leave that scene in or would it have had to change and i kind of landed on the side of because of the style of the comedy throughout the first film it could have just been like left yeah um what i was like another thing i kind of wanted to talk about generally with these films is 
they kind of pushed the like time travel sci-fi genre really to the forefront. I mean, obviously there are yeah. examples of time travel fiction in TV and film before this point, but this is the big time travel movie that everybody knows. And it sort of has like embedded these specific rules of time travel into the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Do you think that's a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like th- this has a lot of implications for so many films that have come pr- has come after it in terms of like ha- the dynamics of time travel. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's 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 actually quite impressive how far reaching this like the mechanics have become you know yeah i mean it's even referenced in um avengers Avengers endgame Endgame, which we talked about last week it's the first like he lists a ton of time travel movies and it's the first one he lists and then he goes like i think it's tony stark goes did you seriously get the rules for time travel from back to the future and stuff like that you know it's referenced multiple times in reference to that and it's just I, i just think that's really interesting and i think the kind of um the trope of have the character having to sneak around so his past self can't see him is is very much lifted from from the second film yeah definitely and it, it just is i don't know i i kind of really i mean they, they they did the best they could i thought with like kind of like coming up with that mechanic and it does work from a kind of a a uh a storytelling perspective and it does it does heighten the stakes it, it, it like it's an easy to kind of grasp um concept as well for the general public yeah uh like you can it, it's immediately tangible for everybody but I, I know so many scientists are like that's not how it works at all like, well i don't think and, it works at all well, you know, no, time no, travel doesn't exist well then no, 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 <laughs> I, I mean like like it wouldn't work like that i guess is what they were fair what, what enough yeah, yeah yeah fair enough um I want to talk a little bit about the third film. I, I'm probably going to jump around a lot because, um, again, there's a lot of hours in in the three films. Like I, I didn't realize how long that second movie was. Oh, hot damn! I was waiting for it to be over for quite a while. But anyway, back to the third one. Um, what do you think of like the third one generally is regarded as like the weakest movie? Would you agree? Actually, I. <sighs> I'm not going to lie, I think I like the third one better than the second one. I think I enjoy it, because I like the change of scene a bit more, I think. Yeah, I, I guess it, it... I get what they were trying to do with the second one of, like, oh, going into the future, kind of make it, like, su- make it seem a little bit, like, super futuristic, but they didn't change all that much and of the yeah. stuff. Like, I, I feel like if, if they're going to do it, they shouldn't have done 30 years down the line. They should have done it, like... Oh, fifty years, uh, like fifty years down the line, and, and really heightened the kind of whole futurist aspect of it. Well, that's what they thought twenty fifteen would be like. Yeah, clearly. but, um, but <laughs> Which, I, I, I'm spoiler alert: it wasn't. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely not in, in no no flying cars. But I guess with the if they did the like past, if they go back to the uh, past a lot, you can kind of do a bit more world building and a bit more. It, it feels just a bit more realistic, and it feels just a bit more tangible for yeah yeah. well i like the um going back to the past in the third movie oh this happens because of that because you did this like the futurama episode where they go back to roswell and fry becomes his own grandpa yeah i like that aspect of time travel just as like an entertainment thing just that oh this thing happened and you didn't realize it was actually because you did it kind of thing i really enjoy that about time travel fiction rather than oh you have to be in the future and avoid doing this because otherwise bad things will happen i mean that is yeah. a good part of it and i do like that about the um 
the second Back to the Future movie. But again, I much prefer the whole the first one. It's just like, oh, this these events happened, and the world that you live in now, like, is this way because you did these things. Yeah, so yeah. I kind of like I like that as the kind of conclusion of the story. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the like love story in the third one? Do you think Doc needed a girlfriend, wife? Uh- I I actually th- I, I thought I thought it worked. I thought it was actually like quite like I don't know quite quite touching like the way that like me too. Yeah. I think it's super sweet. Well, and, and it's it does it's like it's just like a really really like it seems like a good like emotional relationship. That's it's just like not like I don't know. It feels very very wholesome and feels just really not not. I mean, it's a film. It's you know it's not entirely believable. It's but Hollywood it's, love. Yeah, you know? Hollywood love. But at the same time, it does feel like their interactions feel kind of really quite well thought out. Yeah, you know? I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I do think she's a bit like it, it's to give Doc an opportunity to be a hero because he has to like save her a bunch of times and and things like that. But like the scene where they get to dance together at the festival, it kind of like it warmed my little heart. It was it's really sweet. And I think it's interesting because at the beginning of the first film, you think the last person um to ever like be in like a romantic relationship in this franchise would be dark and then he gets his his kind of happily ever after at the end which is nice and it's i think they've in the third film they did a really good job of like ending the franchise like yeah, yeah. fully ending it no one's gonna try and make a sequel for that no one's gonna hopefully no one's gonna try and reboot it like there's no point don't even bother yeah but like i think they they do the kind of he lands the delorean uh, back in 1985 drives it along the train tracks a bit and it gets smashed by a train immediately i do think that was you know the filmmakers Purposeful. symbolically killing the franchise they're like the delorean is obliterated by a freight train it is not coming back kind of thing yeah um which was cool but then obviously they do have the uh the train what do you what do you think of the train aesthetically I, and practically and i thought that was pretty cool like i i i, I know it's it's a bit it's well the whole fucking film's corny but and it's very that specific hokey. is very very hokey, but I, it's a very in keeping with the whole, with the whole vibe and and t- kind of general look of the whole film. So me too. I yeah. really love the kind of the very Jules Verne because obviously they've established that the couple love Jules Verne. The very Jules Verne kind of look of the thing, and also what I really like about it, it doesn't spell it out so much in the film, but also like. Doc said, oh, I'm going to stay in the past and just be a blacksmith and marry Clara and, and have a have a simple life. Everything we know about that character, there's no way he would have done that yeah. at all. No way. So, of course, he managed to make a steam engine into a time machine. Of course he did. Yeah, just, exactly. Of course, Doc Brown managed to do that. What I would say is like the fact that the train could fly. I was a bit like, come on. Just have it drive away down the tracks and like shoot off. It would have been a bit of a cooler because the CGI wasn't really up to it. Well, at the I time. mean, that it was, was 1990. The third one wasn't. That it? was pretty good for 1990. 1990 uh, tech. I yeah, mean, it wasn't bad, but it's still. I, I just think it would have been a cooler. Like when the train arrives on the train track, it's really cool. So having it like depart the same way for me would have been yeah. just just nicer, aesthetic, more aesthetically kind of pleasing. Yeah, yeah, I I can I can agree with that. You know, but um, one thing I kind of did not really like about this about the specifically the second and second and third film is why they just kept on going on and on and on about oh 
like Marty can't be called chicken or else he just fucking loses his whole shit. Like I, I get that, you know, it's, it's supposed to be some like general character development where he learns, you know, not to be too hasty and he learns to be just like yeah, less, less in, impetuous, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's just so, it's just hokey to, on a whole nother level. And it just is like, okay, come on. Like you, there's gotta be something else other than just being called chicken or coward. Like, what the who the fuck thinks like how does that rile somebody up to that degree like it, well, again it, it i think just it's seems the, like, so yeah like that that's not a reasonable reaction to, like like i i guess even like in cinema you like you still want to see as a somewhat reasonable reaction but i mean you can expect you know somewhat outlandish but that's just outlandish to this like really 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 stupid degree that just <laughs> makes it really really annoying well again i think it's that like fatal flaw and this in that style of comedy they really beat you over the head with it you know every time someone calls him chicken you get a like a you know lots of string instruments going dun very loudly and he he gets that same kind of twitch in his eye and everything and it's it's part of that like hokey comedy and it's, it's i think they've derived a lot of that from like comic book like superheroes their fatal flaw is something you are fully like beaten about the head with and it's got to be this, it's not just like something that you kind of see glimmers of and then they grow and it and it goes away it's it's very much like a this one thing will make this person do this kind of thing and i i, I quite like it i think it's got a good place and i i think one of the reasons they've chosen that is because you know marty's 1985 like bullies will say it his dad's bullies in 1955 will say it but also like the the guys from the old west will also say it you know it's one of those very universal and they can translate that fatal flaw kind of thing very easily throughout the the entire timeline you know yeah i don't know it's and marty has to have conflict with somebody at some point you know yeah yeah and it's a good way of like instigating that um and seeing you know he's not like a perfect hero he gets and it's something his like girlfriend gets frustrated by and his parents get frustrated by and that he does eventually like learn his way out of and it uh as we see in the third film really um like changes his future in a in a really good way because he's obviously in the second film has a terrible future yeah i can we talk about biff yeah i was actually just about about to say that i i thought biff was a good villain for this whole for this whole thing i thought you know he, yeah he, like he is everything that people should not be <laughs> yeah like he, he, he's this very sexist ignorant yeah. ignorant dickhead who's just very 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 like bullheaded and so unwilling to like like he, he's so unempathetic it's just kind of like you can like anybody can be like oh yeah he's 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 the he's the dickhead yeah. he's the villain Although, like, what I, what I kind of wanted to get at, you bringing up that he's sexist is a really, like, good point because women aren't portrayed fantastically in this movie and uh, especially at the end of the third movie, Marty kissing his girlfriend while she's passed out. Not a good move, Marty, but it's really good that, you know, I, I think this is setting quite a low bar for films generally, but the fact that at no point is Biff's behaviour towards women viewed as redeemable or like 
it's it's definitely the one of the main things that makes him evil it's not just like a oh this is an evil person because of x y and z and also he's terrible to women it's like a no this guy is terrible to women it makes him a dick men stand up to him for it women stand up to him for it and he's just like fully irredeemable um I, I will say maybe don't have all of the characters in your film be just his punching bags, but that's by the by. Um, my main thing with Biff is he escalates quite quickly. Obviously, the iteration of him in the third film is um, Buford Tannen. He's is literally like an outlaw murderer. In film three, Biff is fully willing to kill Marty, fully willing to kill people. And he like admits to murdering George McFly by just fully shooting him. Like, damn, dude, you were just meant to be an, a high school bully asshole. When did you just be like, yeah, I'm just going to straight up be killing people now? Well, like, when did that happen? Well, I, I think it was like, it just, it, you can see it in his character, though. It like it, It's not an out-of-character thing for him. No, uh, I'm not saying it's out-of-character. Yeah. I just think it's just, just excessive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very much so, but it's just like the the car chase scene well, uh, well, uh, uh, where well, Marty's got the hoverboard. He's like trying to ram him into the side of the tunnel, and he's about to like run him down if Doc doesn't like hoist him up on the flags. Do and you, stuff. You, you know why they killed uh, killed off George Fly, George George McFly in the in the films, right? Um, Crispin Glover wouldn't 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 come back uh, and unless he was given an inordinate amount of money. So fair enough. They... I mean, I just thought he he didn't really have a place in the second film anyway because a lot of like marty's motivation well, for that second film is his mother being married to biff and if george mcfly was still around it wouldn't well but wouldn't happen you know the initial part of the second film where where uh, uh marty's girlfriend goes into the uh goes into the house you know yeah and she see like like uh marty mcfly's mom and dad sh- uh, dad yeah. show up that was not actually his. That was not actually Crispin Glover. Was that, it not? That, oh, that, I just thought it was. No, that was somebody in in pretty heavy prosthetics, Aye. and uh, and they used a bit of his voice from the first film because they didn't want it. They didn't want to bring it back. What? That's yeah. crazy. I wonder how much they had to pay to just use his voice, though. Uh, they. I don't think if they. I. Like, I, well, I don't think they did because they got sued for it. Oh shit! I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. Crazy. Use of prosthetics in this film. Something that is done substantially heavily on multiple characters. What do you think of it? A bit too uncanny valley or Um, I actually thought it was pretty well done. Uh like I was not expecting to see uh Matthew Matthew J. Fox in Michael so many uh, <laughs> Sorry, M- Michael J. Fox in so many different types uh types of at one point, he's playing his daughter. One, yeah, and, uh, that and, was uh, wild. Yeah, I was like, oh. I didn't notice, and then I suddenly did, and it was like, oh my god, you can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very yeah. good job on the makeup and stuff with that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then he did his great-great-granddad or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's a great... It would have been granddad, yeah. not uncle. I don't... Yeah. yeah. It, it, like... Uh, with all the, the like ginger beard and everything yeah, in the third it was, film. Uh, it's just... it like it, They do him as old. Yeah. They, they they did that pretty well. Like I quite like it. Yeah, I think on a lot of characters it works really well, and it works really well on Biff's character. But out of all of them, he is the one that I find the most like uncanny valley. Maybe it's just because he's like so evil. I find him just unsettling to look at. But when he's in the old makeup, he's really unsettling to look at. Yeah, like it's like Ugh, I hate that. Fully hate that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that. Oh man, I really like these movies. Like there's so like. I guess the kind of elephant in the room, the main 
huge problem with this franchise is in the first movie they have his mom like try and make out with him it's fucking weird and they yeah. they just didn't need to do it well it's really weird and i don't like it <laughs> yeah I, I don't like it either but at the same time it's meant to make you feel uncomfortable it's like it's yeah this it, is true it, it's it, it like i th- i think that the out of all of them the the first one had the best overall kind of like structure to it and the, like the the pay, like everything about the first one was just so on point and so like so thought through you know other like, than like i mean yeah his mom doesn't get killed but she's like essentially fridged at multiple points because just violence against her is used to motivate yeah. marty at multiple times in the franchise and that's just distressing and unsettling and i don't yeah. know if it's necessary because marty you just call him a coward and then he'll fight you you don't need to also try and rape his mom well, but, um, yeah, well, th- I mean, that's kind of why I was like, that's why the whole coward thing just felt completely out of character from, like, in comparison to the first, like... No, it, it like, happens in the first one as well. I don't remember that happening in the first one. I'm pretty sure it happens in the first one. Like, I'm pretty sure it's established early on that this is this is Marty's whole deal. Yeah. Um, but, oh, something positive I really want to talk about. Costumes. Yeah. The costumes in this franchise are insane. They're yeah. so good. Like... I just, I really like, especially, like, I guess the thing that made me really click onto it was actually the last scene of the third movie is when they come back in the train time machine. Doc Brown, like, looks insane. Like, Christopher Lloyd looks insane in that outfit. He yeah. looks so good. The gloves are great. Like, they're just beautifully detailed. And the whole outfit is just so wonderful. But then when you think through it, like, I just love the costumes throughout i mean the the 2015 costumes i could give or take but they do a really good job of uh like actual kind of period clothing for 1955 obviously it's made in 1985 so the 1985 clothing is very good the old west clothes are all like very good like the subtleties having to be a bit more like the kind of differences having to be more subtle between those costumes yeah, because yeah. they're made of more similar fabrics and stuff. But I just, I just really enjoy the whole aesthetic of these movies. Well, the, I really like the look of them. Well, the, the the set building and the set design was actually quite yeah, good. The only, the, the only I thing I, I, the only thing I really didn't like was the futuristic uh, Hill Valley yeah. town center because that, that it just kind of was like uh, you're definitely just trying to make it look familiar to they like they almost did try to do it too familiar so you're like oh i know exactly where this is and it yeah, yeah but that's but, like, kind of the point I of the movie i get that but it it just made it look a bit too like if you're trying to sell the future you need to sell the future a little bit harder yeah yeah i get that i mean i do think they need to keep some very central touchstones like the the town hall with the clock needs to be the same in every you know, in 1885, we see it being built. In 1955, we see the clock getting destroyed. In 1985, the clock is broken. Yeah. And then in the future, it's still, you know, there. Yeah. yeah I, I think we definitely need that kind of constancy. But then the full, I, again, I, I see what you mean with the full recreation of the skateboard chase from the first film. Because everyone loves that scene. And the, the song that they picked to go with it is iconic and everything. It was written for the film, wasn't it? Yeah. Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love. Like, iconic song iconic sequence but just that like completely recreating it for the second movie uh <laughs> yeah it, it it kind of almost falls flat a bit and it, it's 
just a little, maybe yeah. just a little. But instead yeah. of ending the, the sequence with the um, the car getting full of manure, which I like as a through line, it happens yeah. to Biff in every movie. They fully get thrown through a glass window and horrifically injured and maimed, but seem fine when they're arrested five minutes later. Yeah, so I well, guess it's okay. Well, one of the the stunt people got seriously injured, and yeah, well, yeah no, I, yeah. you you did say, and that's like horribly tragic. Yeah, but. I mean, one thing. I definitely want to say about this this film that was really really cool. It, uh, all all three films is the cinematography was really like I I'm pretty sure that they had um, the same cinematographer throughout, which is it's just really nice to actually kind of get that consistent vision throughout, and it just it it, it well con- yeah consistent perspective not vision, um and it's just really really kind of. It, there's a lot of thing like a lot of the techniques that they use in this uh, in these films that have definitely been kind of lifted and kind of used in and in, in other films and it, they've kind of become like again cultural touchstones that are really 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 important you know and I really really love the tracking shots and the jib shots that they do to kind of like like for establishing shots because it just like it feels quite it makes a lot of this, the sets feel a lot more expansive than they really are. Yeah. yeah, I really like that as well, that they've used the kind of space in the set and the like camera angles and cinematography to allow for a lot of these, like, you know, a lot of that physical comedy, especially where they've got the Marty as the kind of time cop in the fedora and the and the leather jacket sneaking around like a real spy kind of thing. And they've done the bit that kind of comes to mind is um in the office where he's trying to get the almanac yeah, back yeah, off yeah. the professor, and he ducks behind the desk. You don't see him move. Um, the professor goes around the desk. He obviously doesn't see him, leaves the room. And it, uh, no, he goes back around the other side of the desk. The camera pans down and he's all crunched up under the desk. Like stuff like that is, I just love the use of the kind of camera in, in making the visuals yeah. like that happen. I think it's well, really cool. Well, to me, the, the big, like the angle, the angles that they use are very like almost like they didn't do too many like slow, super low angle shots they didn't do a lot that many super high angle shots unless they're using it to establish where where you were at or where's like a character coming in like like they did most of the shots at eye level so it kind of felt like okay you're kind of like from like the camera's perspective is always of the viewer uh, uh, like yeah so it, it it makes it feel really like kind of immersive in a way, but not as I guess immersive is the wrong word. It kind of you kind of feel almost voyeuristic and kind of like what's going on, you know? Yeah, I just feel like it, it's cool because you can you can be like, oh, well, I can see this. And the way they've done it is like, because I know I can see this, I know that the people in the shot can see this, this and this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I think is really cool. Um they reused like a lot of footage from the first film, obviously, in the oh, second film. So. Um, do you think, you know, lazy or genius? Um, actually, quite, quite genius. I, I, I'm pretty sure that they did also reuse like they might have had to reshoot some 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 parts. Anyways, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, they obviously had to get yeah. different perspectives yeah. with another Marty in the shots. Well, like especially the bits where he's like on stage and going up the stairs and up the ladders and stuff they would have had to reshoot a lot of that stuff yeah but um they did just verbatim take a lot of the shots like the one the bit where they um the delorean shoots back to 1985 yeah that that shot is shown like two or three times in the second film yeah 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 um 
Did you know that Eric Stoltz uh, was gonna was played? Uh, they did like four months of um, shooting with Eric Stoltz as 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 Marty McFly. I did know that. Is because yeah. uh, was it? Um, he was on Family Ties, wasn't he? Uh, was uh, it Family Ties? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Michael J. Fox Michael was on. J- Michael J. Fox was on Family Ties. On Family Ties, and the shooting schedule was going to be too right, uh, arduous. Uh, arduous, but he did it anyway, even though he was like working a full day on the Family Ties set, and then he would go. Um, to the Back to the Future, the set at like six in the evening and do a load of filming, which is yeah. wild, absolutely wild. I'm not gonna lie, I don't, I couldn't see Eric Stoltz play <laughs> play him. I couldn't see any anyone but uh, Michael J. Fox doing it. To be honest, he's yeah. so he's so good in this role, and he just he does that. His bewildered look <laughs> when so he doesn't good. know what's going on is so good. And then there's um, you know, he just does a really good balance of like being the kind of you know he's he's the like stand-in for the audience so like he can ask the questions so we get things explained to us but also when he's like by himself or doing something that needs to be done he takes initiative he makes mistakes he corrects the mistakes and i think he's uh like it's a realistic portrayal he's not like immediately amazing at everything yeah he uses the skills he already has like the skateboarding and the guitar and stuff like that rather than oh all of a sudden he can just like be a super sleuth yeah even though he's never like been a spy before he makes mistakes during that sequence and yeah i, I really enjoy that it's all based on stuff that he's good at yeah i mean i this is completely tangential but can i say something that i really uh, like one thing i love about doc brown's character go for it that the fact that he always makes models of like what's like of of how to get everything to work. Yeah, I love it. I I I, I think it's a good. It's a really good storytelling yeah. thing to do, uh, like because it kind of set it sets the stakes. Yeah, and it, exactly. And it, and it sets the stage in a way that's just really, like, everyone kind of can quite get quite easy. Yeah. I but the fur in the first film when they're when he's doing the model and it kind of <laughs> the thing catches fire, yeah. the look on his face. Who. Like that kind of like, <laughs> and then going over there with the fire extinguisher was just so so on point. Yeah, it's so good. Oh man, I I really like that as a storytelling device as well because obviously, like, it gets established in the first shot of the first film that Doc Brown makes all these crazy like models and devices and machines. Like, there's a kind of Rube Goldberg yeah. sort of thing going on. Um, is that the right words for that? Yeah, yeah that's what one of those is. <laughs> Sorry, I get those confused with um the Voight Kampf machine from from Blade Runner because <laughs> it's got two words and it's yeah. called machine. Anyway, yeah, he's got that going on at the first thing. So we know he makes all these little like bits and pieces and he tinkers and things. Um, and like you say, it does a really good job of setting the stakes. It's like, this is the point of no return. Once we pass this point, we like, that's it. It does a really good build up to like, also the plans are often quite abstract because they involve like science and time machines. So having a model to not only explain it to Marty, but also to the audience is a really good move. And it just, yeah, it just, it's just a cool little, like little thing. I think it, and also, yeah, like you say, a really good, yeah. um, like what's the word vehicle for extra jokes yeah. like oh this is what's gonna go what's gonna happen if it goes wrong it'll catch fire yeah a bit of foreshadowing kind of possible foreshadowing you know yeah I, I i do also like how like these so many scenes in these films have been kind of parodied throughout so many other uh, other shows and stuff like that and hell like rick and morty is just it was like it's fully stri- a parody yeah fully a parody this. yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah it's i mean it's become its own animal now but it was yeah. born out of the idea I and mean, that's why his name is morty yeah because it's 
you know, it's close to close to Marty. Yeah. Yeah. And and like there's it's been done on oh so many other like sketch shows, like fuck I I don't know how many times I've seen I've seen um like like uh like parodies of it on um on saturday night live yeah. like it's just i think michael j fox has even been in some Sa- parodies yeah. of it yeah, you know? yeah which is which is even better which yeah. is even better and i just i love that he kind of embraces it as like a career making moment for him and also you know delights in its absurdity yeah. along with everybody else uh what's your favorite part of any of the movies favorite scene Ooh, i mean i actually do think it's it's the like for the first film was definitely the model making scene, uh, just well, the, the not the model making scene, yeah, the, 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 the model, yeah, because that's it was just the the Christopher Lloyd's face. He he's just a very expressive character, but that just was really really good. Um, the second film, I kind of love the futuristic house, like yeah, like when they're going throughout the futuristic house, and it's just kind of like I I like it's I don't know, it's just quite laughable quite quite yeah quite fun uh, quite funny but i also do kind of like um biff biff's tower and like kind of the exposition of do you uh, think it's a coincidence that, that he donald is, trump uh reminiscent of a certain former u.s president i think there's definitely that do you think it was on purpose even in like 1987 or whatever probably it, when did it come out hang on i'm literally looking at the page now uh, 1989 yeah uh, i mean i i do think it was possibly intentional but yeah yeah um but and the the third one i absolutely loved the um the dual scene that was that was quite yeah, good yeah that's pretty good i do like that bit yeah. what about you um so the first scene probably the like iconic skateboard chase love that Second film, uh, it's just Marty being a time cop and all of the like physical comedy involved in that. So it's like when he like hides behind the car so Biff can't see him at the exact same moment that old Biff hides behind the tree, just coincidentally, so he doesn't see him either. And then the bit where he's like hiding in the in the teacher's office and stuff. I just love Marty the time cop in that one. It's funny. Yeah, that that, that was um, good. And it, the train chase in the third one, like where um, they just do the most bizarre train robbery ever where he's just like, oh, is this a stick up? And they're like, it's a science experiment. Yeah, that was, I think that's fucking brilliant. That I was a good one. Yeah. Absolutely um, love it. Yeah. Um, given all this, how would you rate it? Are we rating all three films as one out of 10 score? Ooh, no, each individual. Each individual film. Um, I'm going to go seven, six, six point five. I think I'd go eight, six, seven. Nice, nice. I think we're we're very much yeah. in the same ballpark there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it, it's in the higher end, but like the second one was weakest to me. I mean, but then yeah, then, I mean, then again for most trilogies. Well, yeah. but I, that I, that again, yeah, it is the case for most trilogies. But okay, I just I love it. I just love it. I love I love the time travel kind of genre, and it's kind of got that a little bit of a heist because he's trying to steal the book. And yeah. I love heist films. It's been established. Yeah, can't wait till we get to cover some heist films, guys. I can't wait. Yeah, cool. Well, um, next week we'll be covering Barry Lyndon, uh, by Stanley Kubrick. Oh no! <laughs> I've never yeah. seen it, but I don't like Kubrick. Well, this will be good. Uh, it's not going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner next week. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Music was "Potato Deal" by Craig MacArthur. The photo used for our cover is by Rodolfo Clicks. 
Audio editings by Ryan DeRoges, and this podcast was produced by Laura and Ryan DeRoges. Find us on Twitter at All's Fair Podcast, on Instagram at All's Fair and Love and Film, or email us at all's fair and love and film at gmail.com. Thank you.